Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm John Snow and this week's guest is Michael Mansfield KC. Michael became a barrister in 1967 and since then he's worked on some very high profile cases in the UK. He's overturned miscarriages of justice, fought for civil liberties and for change. He helped to free the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six. He defended the Orgreave Miners, fought for the family of Stephen Lawrence and he represented victims' families at inquiries into the sinking of the Marchioness, the Hillsborough Football Stadium disaster, and the fire at Grenfell Tower. Michael has now written a book called The Power in the People. In it, he revisits some of his most important cases to demonstrate that when people get together, they can make lasting and positive change. Michael wants to inspire people to give them a blueprint for fighting their own battles, and to challenge the status quo, because he believes that those who stand in the way of change cannot do so forever. Michael, it's great to see you because we go back a very long way, although I haven't seen you recently, but I worked in a day centre for homeless and vulnerable teenagers and you were the blessed QC that was prepared to defend them and represent them. And by God, they needed representing. I mean, they were living on the street. They were lifted by the police. There was very little harmony or care for them. And you struck me as an extraordinarily important lawyer and I was amazed that you were prepared to give them time. Well, I remember it distinctly. It was an extraordinary period. Uh, the person who actually asked me to get involved was another lawyer called Bernard Simons, very unfortunately no longer with us, but he thought there was a need to provide legal advice, actually, 
uh, which most lawyers were certainly not barristers were prepared to to do on the street. And so I said, yeah, for a time there was a drop-in centre in Covent Garden at King Street, and it was APA, the Association mm. for the Prevention of Addiction. So I remember all that, and I remember going there as often as we could, and it seemed to work really well. To say I enjoyed it, I'm not sure whether that's the right word, <laughs> but I felt, you know, it was making a difference. You were one of the few lawyers who would really go the extra mile to try and keep our kids out of jail. Yeah, it, it's partly to do with the fact I don't come from a legal background at all. In fact, I come from a background very near where we're recording, in other words, railways. That's what I was going to be doing, driving trains, according to my father. But So really not coming from a legal background helped the momentum. In other words, I sort of felt we should be out there on the street and we should be trying to understand the problems which I'd never faced myself because I'd not been brought up in a situation where there were loads of drugs everywhere. You came from Finchley, I think, right? Yes, a certain um, Mrs. Thatcher land. Mm. <laughs> you were pre-Mrs. Thatcher, we dare say. Oh, uh, we dare say, yeah, <laughs> we dare say. Um, yes, my mother, well, most of my parents were Tories, and um, my mother used to do a lot of work for Maggie... And she said to me, you must help me. And I said, all right, as a doting son and all the rest. And she said, as you grow up, you have certain skills you need, especially if you're going to meet the right woman in your life. And the way to do that is join the right things. So she said, firstly, go to a dance class in High Barnet <laughs> over a pub. So I did that. And she said, if you join a tennis club, there's a very nice one I know, Golders Green. So I did that. And the last one she said, and of course the most important thing is, a conservative party <laughs> socials in Finchley, which I went to. And she said, by the okay. way, would you deliver all these envelopes, which I did dutifully? I think now, you know, if I dropped them in the Dollis Brook, which was nearby, we might have changed <laughs> the world. <laughs> but was there a, a radical beat in your heart at that time? Yes, I think there was in the sense that I felt extremely lucky going to a public school in North London. And I felt uneasy because... My father was having to sacrifice a great deal. He was disabled, but he worked extremely hard during the war on the railways and after the war on the railways. And I felt he was having to, you know, raise a lot of money. And so I got to prove myself to him. And proving myself to him meant, to me anyway, that I had to understand more than just what was taught in the classroom. Your mum, Marjorie, had an early brush with the law and took her fight all the way to the courts. What happened and what impression did it have on you? Amazing. <laughs> well, is it what made you a lawyer? Almost certainly, yes. It's certainly the instigation and it's the little things in life in a way that make the bigger difference. My father couldn't drive because he was disabled, so she did all the driving. And she had a routine and every week on a Thursday, she'd go to a local store, Sainsbury's, to get the same one joint to last the week hmm. because they were dealing with austerity in the 1940s and 50s. And um, on a particular occasion, it would appear that a local Bobby police officer thought that she had part between the studs of a pedestrian crossing. <laughs> she always said, I would never have done anything like that. So when the summons came through for this parking offence, she refused to pay it. And she said, I'm going to defend it. This is way back in the 50s. Nobody ever defended a parking offence. So she said, no, I'm not having it. I didn't do it. Everybody in the road said, you know, don't fight it. You're hmm. She said, not only am I going to fight, I'm going to represent myself because I know what I'm going to say. So she goes to the magistrate's court. She would have been wearing a long 
beige mac, black gloves, huge handbag, <laughs> and one of those plastic headdresses that you put over if it rains. And I can see her being quite determined, going there, saying she's called on. And, of course, what the police officer didn't realise, and the court were very impressed, of course, was that my mother had a witness. It was my father sitting in the passenger seat because he couldn't drive the car. So Because he only had one leg. He only had one leg. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was fighting in the Middle East during mm. General Alibi's surge up towards Palestine. He had been honorably discharged from the army and had a good war record and all the rest. You can just imagine the kind of person he is. So he comes in, this is Perry Mason stuff, not in a wheelchair, but, you know, he's only got the one leg, so he makes <laughs> most of it as he comes in. That was it. Acquitted. You know, got case dismissed or whatever. And, of course, it was headlines at that time, and it got into the local newspaper. And when we used to go out in the car, she'd point. She said, there's one over there. And what was she talking about? A blue bottle. She called every police officer blue bottles. She said, there's another blue bottle. Now, what are they up to now? If they, if they did that to me, in other words, make up a story which uh, wasn't true, what will they be doing to other people? She was really, it actually sowed a seed of serious mistrust in authority. And in the end, she said it so many times, and it obviously began to affect me as well. It became your inheritance. Yeah, it did. I'm trying to fix what sort of age you were as, as this happened, because you left Finchley to study history and philosophy in yeah. Kiel. Did you have any inkling that you wanted to be a barrister at this point? And was philosophy a useful subject? Absolutely. It's a bit like Topsy, the way things have happened. Everybody thinks, you know, I'm a dedicated red under the bed who read Das Kapital at an early age. I always thought you were a pink under the bed. Pinko, yes. It was, <laughs> it was probably closer to the colour of my socks. But it grew very gradually. In other words, my, my father died in 1960, and my mother said, well, you're going to have to fend for yourself kind of thing. I didn't get into Cambridge uh, in a way. I'm quite relieved I didn't, but anyway, I didn't. And then I didn't get into Keele either, which was the university of my choice. I, I didn't know what a I... A very new university. Then. It was brand new. Mm. Brand new And then. attractive for that. And it had been forged out of North Staffordshire <laughs> countryside, <laughs> well, a, an ex-army camp, in fact, by Lord Lindsay, who um, wrote The Democratic State, and he was a Balliol man, and he wanted to create a new university in the image of an Oxford college. And so I, I thought this sounded rather attractive and different. However, I didn't get in. Mm. But my best friend did get in. And I knew he got the same results as me. So I thought, wait a minute, mm. not having this. Like my mother, not having this. So I found out where the admissions tutor lived. And on the Sunday before the Monday when the term started, I went up and I knocked on his door. He was having lunch. I remember what he was having because he shared it with me, Angel Delight, butterscotch. <laughs> So, <laughs> what a memory. <laughs> and so I went there. And he said, you know, who are you and what are you doing here? And I said, well, um, I don't think it's fair. My friend, he's got in. He's got the same results as me. So why haven't I got in? So he was taken aback by all this. And he said, well, I'll have to go and get the files. And he did. And he came back and he said, yeah, you're absolutely right. I can't really explain it. So I tell you what, I'll interview you now over the angel delight. And I said, oh, right. But he said, I've only got one question. If I were to give you £1 million right now, what would you do with it? 
What million a, then, there's two what million. What a question. I didn't wait long because to me it was all very obvious. I said, well, first of all, one half of it I'd give to my mum because she hasn't got much money. We never have had a lot of money. I keep the other half. I would come to university. I'd start by traveling around the world and I'd use it up seeing all the places I've never seen. And I, I stopped and I said, that's the best I can do. And he said, I'll give you a place. You can start now. And he said, what's that bag down there? I said, that bag down there is my things. In case you did let me in, I want to start tomorrow. And he said, wow. And then when they had a, a foundation year in which, like a shop window in the world for all students. So they said, don't concentrate on what you want and what you think you want. Have a look at this and see if there's anything in there. Along came philosophy on the sort of carousel of subjects taught by a man called Professor Flew, who was an empiricist, well-known empiricist. Yeah, unfortunately, he's dead now. But I said, I want, that's what I want to do. I want to do philosophy. I remember going to the first class, and of course, I'd only just joined. And he said, um, you know, again, who are you and what, what, why do you want to do philosophy? He said, you've never done it. You've never heard of it. Have you read anything? And I said, no. He said, then you're not starting today. When you've read the following, you know, History of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell, you can come back here. And then he put me through it. And at the end of it all, for me anyway, it was the best discipline ever because it's not about the content of something. It's about the art of thinking, lateral thinking, which I picked up from him. But it stayed with me, that ability. And I've got a podcast goes out at the moment, which is based on that very idea, namely uh, lateral thinking. While you were at university, you read 10 Rillington Place. I did. Uh, for any listener who's not heard of this, can you tell me about this book and the impact that it had on you? And is it one of the ingredients yes. that led to the law? Yep, absolutely, John. Yes, it did. It was written by Ludwig Kennedy, which I had the uh, privilege to meet later because he watched and helped on a number of cases like the Birmingham Six and so forth, and he's written a lot of books. And he was a great reporter on well, the forerunner of Newsnight. Yes, Exactly, yeah. Yeah. and investigative journalism, because in the book I, that's coming out, I, I try and show that it's the power of people to make change, but actually they have to be helped. And often investigative journalism made the difference. They had the facilities and they were able to ask the questions. And so I picked up Ten Rillington Place and I read it with horror. Ludo's a great journalist and he wrote really compellingly. And what struck me most forcibly was the fact that there was this intransigence in the legal system, an unwillingness to recognize what were fault lines in the system. And I thought to myself, well, here's an example of, you know, my mother in practice, as it were, that uh, maybe I could do something. And it was linked to a TV series as well that was going on, I, I'm not quite sure which years now, called The Defenders. It was an American series. Mm. Same sort of thing, which was investigating, not always winning at all, sometimes losing, but at least articulating the problems that ordinary people face, uh, and uh, particularly those who end up in court and need a voice to speak for them. What inspired you then to go on a CND Easter march in 1960? And what did it feel like to be part of a, a big peace rally? I mean, you well, were more conventional than this. Far more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I recognize this, this anomaly. Uh, and I owe where I've got to through the auspices of other people. The drugs thing, it was Bernard Simons that opened my eyes. Bernard, therefore, was an agent to 
for me in terms of opening up my eyes as to what needed change. But then another individual, when it came to CND, at the school I went to, he's another lawyer, also no longer with us, unfortunately, Michael Seifert. And he was very active, particularly in CND. And he knew because at the same school, he was always the radical element. And I was, I was a prefect and all that kind of thing. So I was definitely establishment. And he said, there's something about you. I think you would profit from looking at it because you, you complained about CND uh, graffiti everywhere. He said that you ought to see what it's really all about. Come on a march. And actually, that's what happened. I went on a march and I thought, yeah, too right, actually. I, I should have known about this before. And so I get involved through other people's enthusiasm. But you see, this period, ban the bomb, yeah. as it was really sort of tagged, that was the moment, the movement. That was what was going on, and you, you decided to be part of it. Yes, I wanted to be. I mean, going on the marches, um, well, I continued to do that right up until the big one against the Iraq war. When I sort of joined, could the front. you get away with that as a as a, a working lawyer? And well, couldn't you be spotted? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, uh, th there's another individual comes into play here. Uh, there was a a big strike in the early days of my going to the bar, a big strike of print workers in Northwest London, and I was asked to go and join a picket, mm -hmm. and I thought, is this? Am I chancing my luck? Is this wise? <laughs> yes, is this wise? I got there and there was a very elegant, tall gentleman standing on a pair of ladders, steps, sort of, with a megaphone, black jacket, pinstripe trousers. I thought, who's he? People said, don't you know who he is? I said, no, I don't know who he is. It was John Platts Mills, who was a very well-known radical lawyer, uh, who... A QC. Yeah, a QC. Yeah. And I thought, wow, <laughs> there he is droves of police officers <laughs> outside this factory. And there he was extolling the virtues of the, the print workers who'd come out on strike. And I thought, are they going to arrest him? What are they going to do? And he was an example of the fact you have to be fearless. But it, it's extraordinary because you sort of explain your radicalism as if you were dragged along. But you, yes. it was more than that. Well, that's the difficult question, John, because... You know, I was brought up in a very conservative background. I went to a very conservative school in the sense that that's how it looked to me anyway. I lived in a very sort of a leafy suburb, not too many leaves, but suburb of Finchley in North London. I'd had a pretty sheltered upbringing. Going to Kiel began the process of opening my eyes. But it was, I have to say, it's, I suppose I, there was something in me which wanted or needed some different direction and I think it was more that. And I, it, once I began to see the world as it was, not the one that I was, I was in a sort of bubble, uh, a lower middle class bubble in North London. And I needed to get out of that and see what was really going on. Hmm. So it, it was a practical baptism of fire. It's interesting because, I mean, I was no lawyer, although I did read law at university before I was thrown out. Um, <laughs> well, but, but, but what is interesting is that the law was a pathway, even though it was a pretty unradical course in those days. Yes. And that was your passport. Yes, because there's another strain here, which I haven't actually mentioned, is that uh, my father, before he died in this, it all happened at the same time, really, that I was forging myself towards the law. He said, Michael, you'll never do it because we haven't got the money, we haven't got the resources, you come from the wrong background, <laughs> so forget it. 
you know, so he didn't know that actually all the while, the more he said don't, the more I thought, actually, maybe I should. So it was a sort of combined effect of the two forces in opposite directions. Your book details many cases, but let's begin with miscarriages of justice and the Birmingham Six. What was the crime and how long had the defendants been in prison when you became involved? Oh, they'd been in prison a long time, 15, 16 years. So it's a long time. They've been campaigning. You have to remember that I didn't represent them at the trials, but the hostility that people had for the people convicted was huge. And it's understandable. It's understandable that people who've been close to explosions in two public houses and there are a large number of victims. So these individuals, the Birmingham Six, had to fight their corner from inside a prison cell facing all this hostility. And it took the world in action, in other words, investigative journalism, to begin to unravel because they had the resources to have a look at this kind of evidence and how unreliable the scientific evidence was that linked two of the six to the explosions. How did you become involved? Another person. It's not because I went out and assault them or, or, or anything like that. I mean, my mother was pretty horrified she was still alive that I was doing this. No, I became involved because I met another lawyer, the third lawyer, really, this time. It was Gareth Pierce, who is a stalwart, who is mm. a legend in her time. And she does phenomenal work year in, year out. And I got to know her very well. And she, I don't know how she became involved with the Birmingham Six, but she got me involved. Mm -hmm. So it comes through somebody else. And would it be right to say you won? Oh, yes, in the end. But, uh, you know, the winning, and this is the story of the book, really. These things don't drop out of the heavens. <laughs> and they're not low-hanging fruit, which you just pluck off the branch. These are things you, and, and it's every single case I think I've put in the book, as well as lots of other examples. You have to fight, and you have to fight hard, and you may think you can't possibly win, and you may think you can't possibly win because you haven't got the resources and so on at government. But what has gradually, I think, em emerged over the period of my lifetime is that ordinary people have woken up to the fact that actually, one, they don't have to put up with what is going on at any one time where authority is in a very arbitrary way wielding power over them. But you can resist that. And it isn't the ballot box. You can do it in other ways. You can do it through the courts. You can do it through cases. And you may not be rich, but you can raise money. You may not know all the right people, but you can get to know. And it's called collectivity. It's called solidarity. And that's something I think is extremely important. But there's another element that you do mention a little bit earlier, and that is that investigative journalism yeah. played an enormous part. It did. Not just in the Birmingham Six, there are other cases where journalists actually stepped up to the mark. And in a, a case that probably nobody's heard of much, although they should, it's the lead chapter in the book, a man called Matin who was executed, the last man in Wales to be executed. But his case was, you know, it was a, a, a travesty of justice. He was wrongly convicted. Uh, and it, this isn't just having a doubt about the guilt. It, this is one where he absolutely wasn't the person who committed this murder. The family hung on, and they hung on, and then a journalist working for the South Wales Echo gave it some publicity and airing, and then recently another journalist who had a podcast series, actually, interestingly, for uh, BBC Wales, broadcast the iniquity of the case 
and suddenly things you know took off in a way they hadn't before so it was in behind the scenes investigative journalists i think play an absolutely vital role in in our system did it strike you that the entire british justice system needed reforming Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's a strong thing to feel Well, <laughs> if you're a barrister. <laughs> yeah, it, it is a strong thing to take, and a strong thing to take on and think, uh, can I do anything about this? But I think, you know, every contribution you make, and, I, and the older I get, I begin to realize the contributions may have been minuscule because somebody will come up in the street and say, I first heard you speak, you know, in 1935. No, not quite as old as that, but, you know, a long time ago, and they remember certain words, and you you walk away thinking, actually, you've made a difference. Somebody's life has changed. And so in all these cases, sometimes they're very small contributions that are being made, but the investigative journalist, as well as the lawyer who is committed, committed to a vision of a different kind of accountability and truth. That's the big question that comes up in all the inquiries and the inquests I do. The families, they don't want recrimination. They don't want, well, they they obviously accept compensation. It's not about compensation. It's about ensuring that the truth is told despite government lies and that the people are held to account publicly for what has happened. And that's what keeps, I think, those of us who are practicing in the field, keeps us going. Through the whole of my lifetime, it's been a battle to try and get the system changed. And you can't take your eye off the ball. It's no use saying, oh, well, we've got the Criminal Cases Review Commission or whatever, a new institution. Because it depends on the people who actually are operating the system. So you've got to keep your eye on who's there, who's at the steering wheel, because they won't operate properly unless they're being watched by the public. Uh, And in that way, I think that they sit up more rigidly when they realise that they can't get away with it any longer. You're listening to Snowcast with me, Jon Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let's move on to public inquiries. They don't determine guilt. That remains a function of the courts, understandably, and the recommendations aren't legally binding. But you believe they can be a driving force for change. Can you explain? Well, let's take an ordinary example. Um, actually, we're sitting in King's Cross. My God, <laughs> look, at, there was a fire in King's Cross, not, well, some years ago now. But when there's a major incident of any kind, whether it's a catastrophe 
or HS2, what's going wrong there, vast sums of money. People want, what do they do? They say there ought to be an inquiry. And they ask for an inquiry, which has grown up. It's a vehicle that's come very much more to the fore during my lifetime because people recognize that the questions that have got to be asked can only be asked by people who've got authority or at least are bequeathed authority by a government to ask the questions, to summon the witnesses, to summon the documents. And increasingly, we now have a large number of inquiries at this very moment sitting, one of which, of course, is looking at how government handled COVID. Now, my concern about these inquiries is that they don't happen quick enough mm. and that sometimes they cost too much money. So there is an alternative to this, to have a people's inquiry, which is usually quicker. And we had a people's inquiry. It was sponsored by Keep Our NHS Public campaign. And uh, we did it in four months, two years ago, and brought out a report. But the object is to reveal the truth about what has happened, bring people to book in public where they can be questioned, and hopefully there are then recommendations. So one we're waiting for, I've been involved in at the moment, is Grenfell. It's um, mm. the panel that led by a High Court judge, uh, Martin Morbick, is considering it at the moment. And it will have, without question, a raft of recommendations. And what everybody wants is to ensure those recommendations don't get stuck on some civil service, you know, wardrobe at the back in Whitehall, but uh, actually is acted on. So it needs, again, the public have got to be on their guard to ensure that recommendations for change in the housing sector, because all the fires that were exemplified in that inquiry all affected social housing. I mean, there is one element which I would suggest as a TV journalist, yeah, and that is that the Grenfell fire was so vivid, so immediate, so inflicted upon the public's psyche that it's hard to imagine that it can just be shoved away and not acted upon. No, I quite agree. I quite agree, John. I mean, there are things, aren't there? I don't know about your life, but there are things in my <laughs> life. I know where I was when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred or somebody landed on the moon. You know, you know where you were. And over this one, I remember watching it and thinking and seeing the figures of desperation and the dripping elements of fabric dropping off the building. And there was no way in and no way, well, there was a way out for some, fortunately, but not everybody. So I think it can't be erased from the political memory, but it may be dodged, of course, because ministers will pass the buck, as the inquiry itself found. People were passing the buck faster than they could hold it. So a red-hot potato was going around. Nobody wanted to accept responsibility. So one hopes that it doesn't always have to be a catastrophe of this kind in which so many people suffer. It's not just those who died. A very large number of people living in the area who had to watch it. Mm -hmm. And their friends were in the tower. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's, it's shocking. The Grenfell Tower inquiry opened in 2017. When can we expect the final report? That's six years ago. Yeah. Uh, and why does it take so long? Well, I agree about all of that, and that's why we held a people's inquiry into COVID to show you can do it much quicker. So I think there should be a rapid response type of inquiry that comes into play quickly because the problem with the major judicial inquiries is, first of all, you've got to prepare it. 
So you've got to have a team of lawyers who are digging out the evidence, assembling the documents, and usually these days it's all digitized, but basically there's thousands of pages of materials before they even get to the first hearing. Then they've got to you know, brief all the witnesses in the sense of get statements from them, and then they've got to be called, then they've got to be examined by the interested parties, and so on. So that's why the hearings take so long. And whilst there's a place for the thorough inquiry like that, I personally think it's time to look again. So are you advocating a rapid response public inquiry yeah. uh, unit? I am, yes. And the so one it would almost be in permanent session? Yes. A permanent, uh, and obviously, again, you've got to watch the people who are appointed to do it. So they can swing into action at a moment's notice. And in a sense, the model I have in mind was the the panel that swung into action over Hillsborough and actually led to the inquest, new inquest in that case. What did the Grenfell Tower interim report say about community voices being ignored? Well, it, it that's an interesting question because it recognised that the community were saying we had been telling the council and other authorities that the tower itself was in a bad condition and needed refurbishment. And they've been going on and on about it, and they've got very few positive reactions. Now, the interim report didn't actually deal with that aspect. It said, we will be considering the extent to which the community's prophecies about fire, one of which I put in the book, namely, they did prophesy that the only way things were going to change was actually a fire, which of course happened. So what Morbick did was he didn't deal with them in part one. He said they're coming up and we are going to deal with them in module three of the second. Now, I'm not going to make comments about that at this stage because they haven't come to their conclusions. But that's what we're expecting in the full report that will be coming out later this year or next year, that they will then address the extent to which the community had been ignored. You've worked on public inquiries that have led to important changes in public safety, including the Marchioness disaster. Among the many brilliant individuals featured in your book, Eileen Delagio stands tall. What did she accomplish? I mean, there was a group. She's not the only one. A Marchioness action group, of which she was part, but she was a leading figure. And she was a leading figure because she was not prepared to, like the Lawrences, take no for an answer. And she was steeped in safety. She'd worked on an airline. She knew what was necessary to preserve people's lives and properly look after people traveling in whatever form it is. This was on the river. So that was her. She was compelled, as it were, to pursue the safety issues. And what the Marchioness Action Group managed to bring about were serious changes in safety. So I I can cite them because I've, I've seen them all, and they actually matter. Firstly, you need grab chains on the side of the river. So if you end up in the river and you can swim to the bank, you can grab hold of a chain and save yourself. Secondly, you have tailor-made rescue craft. There weren't any on the river. Now there are. So she brought those in. And proper rings that you can throw out into the river. The bridges are highlighted so you you can see which arch you're going under. So they brought in a, a raft of improvements which are not designed just for Thames, Inland waterways throughout the United Kingdom should have benefited from this. But again, tremendous fight to get change. Your book also covers citizens' inquiries, with an especially positive example from Warwick. Can you tell me about this and the actions being taken by the council as a result? 
Yes, this is an ex another example of what I've called a people's tribunal. In other words, they're unofficial. They're not backed by government. They're not judicial inquiries in that sense, although they adopt the trappings of a judicial inquiry. I think they're extremely important because it's the way in which people can assert themselves in a quasi-judicial situation. So what happened in Warwick, and I didn't know anything about it. I live in Warwickshire, but I became aware of it after the event, and I think it's a really quite extraordinary event. A number of people got together. Some of them were local councillors and other people who were interested in really working out for themselves whether the community would support change. And what they did was, was even better, in my view, anyway. Rather than have a wide sweeping inquiry, crossing lots of boundaries and talking about accountability, it decided to focus on one question. The question was, how do we meet our climate targets? That's a question the government's dodging like mad at the moment. And what they did is they assembled a jury of citizens in this part of Warwickshire. This was 30 people because they wanted it to represent the cross-section of people who lived in the area. So it's young and old, some were part of the eco-movement. Others were obviously part of the council. And then they held a series of, if you like, hearings in which experts on climate change, first of all, explained what climate change meant. Then they said, if you want to meet the targets, these are the things you've got to do. So the jury came together and they assembled a manifesto. And then they made a statement. They, first of all, believe there is climate change that's serious. It's an immediate threat. We've got to do something about it now. And these are the proposals. They handed them to the council, and the council's just gone green. Hmm. The council has adopted the policies set out by the community. Now, I wonder what could be better than that. While we're talking about governance, do we need to worry about conservative plans to withdraw from the European Convention on Human Rights? Oh, or has, well... Absolutely. Well, let me give you the option. The, the Bill of Rights, <laughs> has it gone away for good? I hope it has. It, it's not about rights. It's about control. The whole idea was part of a package. In other words, withdraw from Europe. And although withdrawing from Europe is not the same as the convention, they, they, it's all part of the same package, that somehow or another the European court is governing our lives. Well, in fact, it has constructed protocols about for example, workers' rights and so on, which are extremely important. And many people don't realise that the protections that they have actually stemmed from Europe. Now, in March, Civicus Monitor, the annual global index of civil society and civic freedoms, downgraded the United Kingdom to increasingly authoritarian and a, quote, hostile environment. What led to this? Funnily enough... Hostile environment, of course, is the words used by Theresa May in relation to immigration. In other words, creating a hostile environment in which people will not feel encouraged to come. That was, I think, the thinking behind it. In my view, that's why the title of the book is The Power of the People, Not the People in Power. The problem with the people in power over the last Two decades has been the fact that they have little respect for the public. Example, Boris Johnson and his whole immersion in what was going on in Partygate. This isn't about birthday cakes and drinking. It is, in fact, about the people out there. They're the little people. We're the people who run the country. We can do pretty well what we want. We're immune. And then even if they say anything, we'll deny it. And it was found that he'd misled the House of Commons. Well, surprise, surprise, because in fact, the public 
every time the public are asked, I don't think they trust the word of a single politician. And now we have Rishi Sunak going back on various green pledges. This demonstrates that there's a huge gap of credibility between the electorate and the people in power, and we've got to do something pretty drastic. And that's why we've been downgraded, because the right to protest. Just one example. Coronation. Republic. They demonstrate, and what happens? They get arrested. Oh, sorry, we made a mistake. Public outcry because all they were doing was holding up banners. Uh, and, and so that's the state we've got. In. If this happened in North Korea, if this happened in Hong Kong, the British press would be all over it, talking about oppression and suppression. Same thing's happening right here. You were called to the bar in November 1967. In other words, that's when you became a fully-fledged barrister. Yep. Despite recent threats to civic rights, do you think the British judicial system is in a better place now? Uh, No, I don't think the system is in a better place, partly for very different reasons that we haven't discussed, and that is finance, because I think when I'm dealing with this, I'm talking about the criminal justice system has been scored through by the cuts that have been made, and we had 40% cuts in the civil legal aid, and there have been cuts in criminal legal aid. It's very difficult now. That's why barristers went on strike, not because... They want more pay for themselves. They want a system that is properly funded. The courts are overloaded. They cannot cope. So you've got a situation which is stretched beyond belief. It's exactly the same schools with fabric falling apart. The NHS doctors going on strike. It's the same point. So I think we're not in a better position. But I think there is a different point I just want to make, and that is I feel we are in a different position to bring about change because I think the public have a much stronger and better understanding of how bad it is and that something's got to happen than they did, you know, at the end of the war and during my youth when there was a very different flavour about things. And now you worked on Baroness Lawrence's long campaign for justice and you write of her resilience and you your belief that the powers that be bank on the fact that the ordinary person simply won't keep on going. But do you think the toll on the individual can be too great? She has sacrificed a huge amount making changes for future generations. That's actually a question that really Dorian and Neville should answer, I think. Is it too much? Well, but you were there close and and you could see the toll. Upon both of them. Yeah. Uh, Neville, I interviewed him for this book. He said, you've got to remember, I lost part of my family in the killing in uh, Lewisham, and Eltham, rather. I lost part of my family. My son died. But I've really lost more of my family. Neville and Doreen are divorced, and he basically lives in Jamaica. So he's really living a different life. He's living there because that's where Stephen's buried. So, yes, the toll has been immense. But on the other hand, in both cases... Doreen, because she just doesn't give up, and she had another memorial service this year, she didn't want to have to do it, but she did it because she felt that government is not listening again. And, of course, it's this year and last, the Met, not fit for purpose. So she has a point, I think. Neville comes back to the UK and spends his time helping police forces, not the Met particularly, uh, because of his view of the Met is pretty low, but other police forces who are tackling 
uh, youth crime, knife crime. And he goes around and he talks about that. So he, he's giving back a lot because he realizes how serious it is. When the McPherson report was published in 1999, the Home Secretary said he wanted it to act as a catalyst for irreversible change. Does it frustrate you that Sir Mark Rowley, who's in charge of the Met now, wouldn't use the term institutional to describe the racism and other discrimination identified by Baroness Casey's 2023 review. This feels like something of a reverse. It does. And I've been acutely aware from the moment of the McPherson report and institutional racism, because it's not just the term, it's the repercussions of understanding the meaning of the term. Because police officers often get the wrong end of the stick and think that what McPherson was doing was tarring them all with the same brush. Hmm. Well, he wasn't doing that. What he was saying is you have to be uh, alive to a system, a system which has inbuilt prejudices within the way it operates. Not every police officer, but it's a, a systemic situation. Because there were misunderstandings within the police and because a large number of police officers didn't want to accept it, thought it was a betrayal, thought that they were, as it were, being sold down the river. They resisted then, and that inner caucus of police officers who didn't really want to face the change are still there, some of them. There's obviously behind the scenes a memo doing the rounds saying, we will reject the term institutional racism because it doesn't help. They all say the same thing. So I, I feel that that is an insult to the Lawrences that they should be doing it. Your book is dedicated to Stefan Hessel. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yes, he was incarcerated twice in concentration camps and escaped. And after the war, he became a French diplomat, basically at the United Nations, and had a hand in drafting the United Nations Charter and, and the convention there. So he played a very significant part. But I ran into him and actually had the honor of being with him when I was a judge on a panel of people in what was called the Russell Tribunals, dealing with Israel-Palestine conflict, his point was a very simple one. He was steeped in the law. He was steeped in the rule of law, said to all of us who got involved in this. He said, this is what, in a sense, his memorial, that he wanted conflict to be resolved by law, not by violence. And he stood by that, even though he got heavily criticized by various governments for the fact that he was taking them to task when they had failed to uphold international obligations. He's not very well known, except he wrote this pamphlet called Indignez-vous. And actually, it took off. It went viral. It became the, if you like, the, the raison d'etre for the Arab Spring. And it was just a little book, and it was just saying, you don't have to put up with this. You've got to bring about change. You have the power to do it. And in a sense, I, I, I've done it with rather more words, but it's the same point. Finally, I'm wondering if you could read the closing lines of your book. It's the first time I've seen it in print in this way. Um, There's only one way out of this continuing debacle of crazed power brokers. It is for citizens to assert their own skills and consciences in the interests of justice for all, planet included, to lead by example rather than to be led by the myopic self-interest of personal aggrandizement and accumulation of wealth.
Time for change. And the change is you. Silence is no longer an option. That was Michael Mansfield Casey. If you'd like to find out more about Michael's book, it's titled The Power in the People, and you can find a link to that in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. To get in touch, please email hello at snowcast.uk or look for Snowcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.